chapter 8 as we continue our journey through uh, this, this book of the Old Testament. Now, at this point, we know that Solomon has completed building the temple. It's taken him seven years to, to build the temple in Jerusalem. And you recall that he raised up this massive workforce. There were 80,000 men that were working in the quarries that were cutting the stones, very large stones. Uh, they were very um, costly stones. They were high-quality stones. And then none of the chiseling or the hammering was down, uh, done at the temple site. They would take the stones, bring them down Mount Moriah to put them in place, and they all fit together perfectly in building of this temple. So there's 80,000 men doing the cutting and the chiseling there in the quarries on top of Mount Moriah. There's another 70,000 that are carrying the burdens, 30,000 men that are going up to that area, which is today Lebanon, to cut the cypress and cedar trees that the king of Hiram had provided for King Solomon. And, and so it's a massive project that has taken place here. And we know that Solomon uh, would complete the temple. And as we moved into chapter 8, the Ark of the Covenant has been placed into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. There's two rooms in the temple, that is the Holy of Holies. And you recall that as we looked at chapter 7, the previous chapter, it told us the details about how Solomon built the temple, just magnificent, overlaid with gold. The floors were made of gold, and in the Holy of Holies, there are two large cherubims that are about 15 feet high, and their wings were uh, touching from one end of the room to the other, and then a gold chain, and the Ark of the Covenant was placed under those statues of made of gold of cherubim. So it was very magnificent. In the holy place, which was the, the first room that the priest would walk into, there were ten seven-branch menorahs. There were ten shewbread tables. Um, and out in the outer court where they did the sacrifices, there were all these lavers, and there was the bronze altar. And so we looked at that in detail. So Solomon's temple is very grand, very magnificent. This huge workforce that has been raised up, uh, craftsmen and carpenters and, and stone cutters, all being a part of this massive project, and the completion is done. And as we ended last week, that there is the, the open, grand opening of the temple, if you would, that we see here in this chapter. It would be almost like um, the grand opening or the opening ceremonies that we're going to see in the Olympic Games here in just a couple of weeks and, and how that's just a, a, a joyous and, uh, a, a time of celebration and the games are going to start. Um, that's probably as about as close as I can you know, kind of describe what's taking place here. This is all the people of Israel gathered together here in Jerusalem for the dedication and the opening of this temple that's magnificent. And we, we ended last time with uh, the, the glory of the Lord that uh, was there in the uh, house of the Lord, filled the house of the Lord, so much so that the priest could no longer minister. And one of the things that I want to keep in the back of your mind is, first of all, that um, as we look at this and read chapter 8, this is the pinnacle, this is the peak, um, this is the, the glory days of Israel right here in chapter 8. This is as good as it gets for the nation. And this is what God wanted to do with them all along as they came into the promised land. And so what we're going to hear about is God's covenant that he has made with his people and what that entailed. And we know that as David was a man after God's own heart, had defeated his enemies all around him, and then desiring to build the temple, Solomon is able to do this. God is blessing this great prosperity, great peace that in power that the nation is experienced right now. And now they have completed the temple and the glory of the Lord fills the house and it's a glorious occasion. And keep that in the back of your mind as we travel through 1 Kings because what we're going to see is that things are going to get worse now. And we're going to see that they're going to forget about this day here and what the Lord has done and how he has blessed them. And they're going to begin to go after other gods. And then we're going to see that the nation is going to split. So Solomon's going to talk about this in this prayer of dedication. But also, what I want to remind us of as we look at this tonight, and then we'll look at the prayer of dedication starting in verse 14, is that what made this temple so special and so unique it wasn't just all the gold that, that was in the temple. Solomon used a lot of gold. And we're going to continue to read about how Solomon collected gold and, and multiplied gold. And, and he had 
all the things that were overlaid with gold. Matter of fact, we will see in his own palace that he has a throne that has ivory, and then he overlays the ivory with gold. Now, who does that? You know, except somebody who is obsessed with gold. You know, beautiful ivory, and then you overlay it with gold. But Solomon wore golden sandals. And so he has all this gold, all this beauty, all this, you know, unique design of the temple. But what made it unique and special was this, that the presence of the Lord was there and was evident and filled the house of the Lord. And I think that we can make application tonight because as we look at this house of the Lord, this isn't grand like Solomon's temple, but what makes this place or any place um, that, that we meet in is going to be that the presence of the Lord is there and the glory of the Lord is, is evident in that place. Twelve years ago, we dedicated this building to the Lord. And, and we did so that the Lord would be honored and exalted and glorified. And that's what they're doing here. They are dedicating the temple and the Lord is going to be you know, honored and exalted and glorified and His glory fills that place. That's what made the temple very special. But then over the years, we're going to see that, as I mentioned to you, as we closed last time, that about 350 years later, the glory of the Lord departs from this temple because they had turned to idol worship. And in this place, what my prayer is, is that we would always magnify the Lord. From this day forward, uh, as we've always done, that we would never forget that, that what makes this place, this building, it's just that, a building, is that the Lord is here and that his presence is here, and we glorify him. And it doesn't matter where we meet, as long as he is here amongst his people, and he's honored, and his name is honored. So here the name of the Lord is being honored and being exalted, and we're going to see that Solomon's speech uh, at the completion of the work as we begin verse 14. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hands has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. And now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. In verse 19 of 1 Kings chapter 8, we read, Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, verse 20, which he spoke, and I have fulfilled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So Solomon begins to speak at this dedication of the temple. And he explains to the people what we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you recall, again, that it was David, as he was in his palace, that he had conquered Jerusalem. And he looked out and he saw that the Ark of the Covenant, that, that furnishing that was in the Holy of Holies and the Tabernacles for all those hundreds of years, um, you know, the 40 years of wilderness wandering, and then when they brought the tabernacle into the Promised Land, uh, there the Ark of the Covenant was in that tent. And David would eventually bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, and he sees that the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And, and, and he says, you know, Lord, here, you know, you dwell in a tent, I'm in this palace. And he desired to build a permanent temple for the Lord, to honor the Lord. And you know how Nathan the prophet came to David and said, David, you're not going to build the temple because your hands are bloodied, you're a man of war, but your son Solomon is going to build the temple. So Solomon is recounting that, what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But the Lord did come back and say to David, that David, I'm going to establish my throne, and from your throne is going to come the Messiah. And he's going to sit on the throne of David, and your throne is going to be established forever. And of course, David was just so overwhelmed that he broke out in worship to the Lord as that promise, that, that covenant was made with David. So here is Solomon kind of explaining that once again. And Solomon recognized that this was God's plan. 
This was not his plan. This was not his father's, you know, David's plan. But this was God's plan that this should take place. That David, his throne be established. That now I sit on the throne of David, uh, his son, as God said, that, um, that it would take place. And then also that this great place, this temple that honors your name, is now finished. And God has fulfilled his word. And what you and I can know here tonight, is that the word that the Lord gives to you and to me that he will fulfill. And that's one of the things that Solomon is going to talk about as we go through this prayer of dedication, that the Lord is faithful, just as we were singing tonight, to his word and bringing his word to us and faithful to fulfilling his word. He, you know that as you read the promises, as you read God's truth, that he is faithful to keep his word, and his word is true for our lives, and we can stand on his promises and the truth of God's word. We continue as we read in, in verse 22, that then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. He keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. So Solomon recognized that there is no God like like you. And the reason is, is because there is no God like our God. He is the true God. He is the only true God. And there is none that is like him. And it is sad that they right now are acknowledging that. But we're going to see in just a couple chapters that Solomon himself, at the end of his life, is going to bow the knees to other gods and burn incense to them because of the foreign wives that he had married. And at this time, he's recognizing a very important truth. There is no other God like you. But from a short time from now, they're going to, to follow after those false gods. They're not going to follow after the Lord with all of their hearts, even though they're going to be told again of the covenant that God had made with them, to follow me and walk in my ways. And we're going to see that repeated. And we're going to see that even Solomon is going to forget about this prayer of dedication later on in his own life. We continue reading verse 24, that you have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. And therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. And so Solomon keeps giving us the character of God, and that is he is the keeper of his promises. He keeps coming back to that. So here is, is as we stand here today at this dedication of this temple, God has kept his word that he's given to, to David my father, and to me, and to the nation, because he is the keeper of his promises. As you see Jesus in the gospel narratives, Jesus gave three great promises. One, he said that he was going to go and die on Calvary's cross. He kept telling the disciples that, I'm going to go and I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders, and, and then I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to go to the cross. They didn't fully understand that, what was taking place, even up to the time that Jesus was arrested there in the garden and, and would be taken away um, right before he was crucified. And he said, not only am I going to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world, but secondly, that I'm going to rise again after three days. And Jesus never spoke about his crucifixion without also speaking about his resurrection, that he was going to, to rise from the grave. And as Jesus did that three days after his death, he was put into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And three days later, the tomb is empty. The stone had been moved. And, um, and, and Jesus would appear to his disciples. And he would validate what he did on Calvary's cross. He conquered sin and death. He, he's the only one. No other man died for our sins and rose again, just as he promised. So those promises were fulfilled. And of course, Jesus gave lots of promises to you and to me. And we know that those promises are true for us because he conquered sin and he conquered death. And you and I know that as we come to him, that truly that there is no other God like him. The Son of God who has conquered sin and death, provided salvation for you and for me, has provided forgiveness of sin. Oh, it's glorious that we belong to him. He is the keeper of his word. And the Lord also promised that he was going to come back again. 
So you and I, in the day in which we are living in, we can be so excited because the Lord promised that he's going to come back. And that's why I always want to keep the, the you know, expectation and, and, you know, of the coming of the Lord because we do live, I believe, in the last days. And I think that, that as we live in these days, this is something that we need to always keep before us, and I'm going to keep before you, is that the Lord is going to come back, that we are in the last days. We don't know the, the day or the hour, but we are in those days, the season, that we know that the Lord can come back at any time. And we know that he is going to come back because he's a keeper of his word. He's a keeper of his promises, and he promised that he would come for us. We know that if, if our days come to an end in our own lives, that he's going to keep his promise of taking us to heaven to be with him. And so we can stand on those promises. And whatever promise you read in the scriptures, know this, that the Lord keeps his word. He keeps his word. And his word is true to you and, and for me. And so as you read the scriptures, you read his promises, stand on those promises and be steadfast in them. And verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less the temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, towards the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. In verse 30, And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. And so Solomon is saying that here, that Lord, we know that first of all, that heaven cannot contain you, much less this building. We know the scripture declares that God holds the span of the universe in his hand. I mean, he's an awesome God. And, and this temple here was going to be a place, as Solomon is praying, for God's presence to be in this temple. And you're going to see and, and hear this place as your people turns towards this place. So as we turn towards this place, it's a house of prayer, it's a place of sacrifice, it's a place of worship. We know that, that your eyes are on this place, and that's why you see even today when you go to Jerusalem, when the Jews are at the Western Wall, they're facing the Western Wall because of this prayer of dedication. And, and that retaining wall, which is the Western Wall, is still the Herodian stones left over from the second temple. This temple would be destroyed about 350 years later by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And then a second temple would be rebuilt, and it would be remodeled by Herod, and that retaining wall that, that uh, would you know, be there that uh, was the retaining wall for the Temple Mount where the temple was on top. The, that's the holiest place for the Jews in Jerusalem. And you'll see them facing that wall and praying because of this prayer of dedication. They believe that God's eyes are always on that place where the temple was. So here Solomon is praying because this temple honors your name. And your name is declared here. Your eyes are always on this place. In verse 31, And when anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants commend, uh, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So God is the one that can truly judge righteously. He's the one, as Solomon's going to say, is the only one that truly knows our hearts. He knows our hearts better than we know our own hearts. He knows the deepest depths of our heart. So he's the one that can truly judge righteously because of that. In verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn uh, back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back into the land which you gave to their fathers. And so here, Solomon, interesting, he begins to speak prophetically, doesn't he? He doesn't say, if your people Israel are defeated because they've sinned against you. He says, when your people Israel are defeated because they've turned against you. They've turned their backs on you. But as they call out to you, as they call out with their hearts, so you're going to hear them. When the people sin, and, and here Solomon is, is giving them hope 
that later on, as we're going to see, as the captives would be taken off in the captivity, as we will see as we continue 1 Kings and the 2 Kings, because of their idolatry, the house of Israel taken off it by the Assyrians, the house of Judah by the Babylonians, that, that it would be this word, word of dedication, knowing that as we turn to you, Lord, that you will hear us. And here's the thing to remember, and Solomon's going to continue to speak about this, that the heart that comes in repentance and sorrow to the Lord, the Lord will hear you. The Lord will hear you. If we sin and when we sin, if we confess that sin, that he is right, you know, just and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as John writes in his epistle. That as we come to him and, and as we cry out to him, know that the Lord never rejects a heart that truly is seeking him. And that's what I want you to always remember. Because there are people that I talk to that they think, well, you know, I've sinned away the day of grace or I've done, you know, this sin or I've, you know, struggled in this area and God must be so fed up with me and, and doesn't want to hear from me. And, but the heart that truly seeks him and comes that is brokenhearted and humble before him and comes in repentance, the Lord never, never rejects that. And he will hear you. And he desires for us to come when we do sin, when we need him, when we struggle, you know, in the flesh and with worldly things, to come to him brokenhearted, humbly, confessing that sin. You see, as we confess our sins, he is just and righteous to forgive us our sins. And the confession means simply, I'm in agreement with you, Lord, that I have done wrong. It's not making excuses. It's not blaming everybody else. It's not trying to ignore the sin. It's saying, Lord, that what I have done is wrong. That's what confession is. I am in agreement that I've missed the mark. Or this is not right. This is ungodly. This is sin. And Lord, I confess it. Lord, help me. Forgive me. And that's what he seeks from us. And that's what Solomon is talking about. When the time comes, when we turn our backs on you, Lord, that we can come back and give supplication in this, towards this place, and, and you will hear us. Verse 35, he, he continues speaking. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land and you have given to your people as an inheritance. And when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. So Solomon acknowledged that, Lord, you're the one that truly, you're the one that knows the hearts. And we need to remember that because we can think that we can know somebody's heart, but we really don't know their heart. Even, even people that that we know best, that we're close to, and family members, a spouse, children, we can have a good idea what's in their heart, but the Lord is the one that truly knows the hearts of all men, of all people. He knows what's in our hearts, as I mentioned to you. So here Solomon is saying, you know uh, the hearts as we give our hearts to you in repentance, as we confess our sins in verse 40, as they may fear you with all the days they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. So here's Solomon talking about that time when they will turn against you, um, when they will sin against you. God would say, um, through the prophet Amos. Amos came on the scene 200 years after this dedication of the temple. And he would begin to talk about famine. And here we see that Solomon is just repeating to them the covenant that God had made with the children of Israel there at Mount Sinai. And you recall in the book of Deuteronomy, you had the blessings and the cursings. And God made a very you know, simple covenant with them. And it was this, that if you follow after me, and that if you walk in my ways and keep my commandments, because you're my people, then I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to send the rains, and I'm going to 
defeat the enemies, and I'm going to provide for you, and, and there's going to be blessing for you and your family, and the nations are going to see how much you are blessed. That's what they're living in right now. They're living in the blessings and the benefit of, of the Lord because they are honoring the Lord. They're following after the Lord. They're dedicating this temple to the Lord. But it would be later on, and then Amos, who was a sheep herder, would go to the house of Israel 200 years later. And he would talk to them about, in chapter 8, that God said there's going to be a famine in the land. It's not of bread, but of the word of God. We know that Paul would talk about that, essentially the same thing. In his last letter that we have recorded in the New Testament, he said that the time is going to come, not that it might come, but it will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, that they're going to be given over to itchy ears and fables and myths, heaping up teachers for themselves. Paul said to Timothy, that's going to take place, and I believe that we are seeing that today in much of the church at large, and, and there's going to be a famine. There's going to be a famine as it would be the curses of the covenant that if you do turn away from me, the Lord said, that drought's going to come and, and locust infestations and, and, and all kinds of things that are going to happen. You're going to be defeated by your enemies. You're going to go off into captivity. So that was part of the covenant as well. And, and here we see that, that Solomon is reminding them of that. But Amos comes along and he says, there's going to be famine in the land. And it starts, it starts by this, by ignoring the word of God, no longer having a hunger for the word of God. And I think that we're seeing that in the church at large. And, and what I mean by that more and more in the day in which we're living in is that the word of God is not prioritized in churches today. And again, what I mean is church, uh, church at large, a, a general term for churches, that they're getting away from the word of God and the truth of God's word. And we've seen it even in our own land, in our own nation, a nation that was founded upon you know, godly principles and men that believed in God's word and God's truth. And we were a nation, truly one nation under God. But now we have gotten to where there is famine in our land. There's famine literally as we see that there's drought and there's all kinds of things going on. And, and I'm not going to stand here and boast about that. I know about the sovereignty and God, what he's doing. But I do know as I read the Old Testament that God did use drought. He used locust infestations. He did all that to try to bring the people back to him. And the Lord loved his people and he loved the nation. And they were heading in a direction that was so destructive and eventually would lead to destruction and captivity. And the Lord loves this land, and he loves this nation. And I know that he will try to get our attention, and there's famine in the land of the word of God. We're pushing God out of our schools and out of our government and out of everything. We really, are we a nation that trusts God anymore? We're getting further and further away from that. And I really believe with all of my heart that the only true hope for this nation is that there be another revival that there will be another great awakening that will take place. That is the only hope that is for this nation. Otherwise, we're going to continue to decline in morality, spirituality. Um, we're going to see and reap the, the corruption that will take place because we're no longer trusting in the Lord and no longer relying on him and giving thanks to him. The Lord has blessed this nation because we're a nation that trusted the Lord and a nation that was founded upon the truth of, of the Lord. But we've gotten away from that. There's famine in the land. And there's famine in, not only in the land, but in, in churches, so many churches today. And what I simply pray for is that here at Calvary Chapel, and for our own homes and for our own lives, is that we would always have a hunger for the Word of God. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, is what Jesus would say, wouldn't he? And as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, as you come and eat of the bread of life, and as you take of the living waters, Jesus said, come and drink of me, and out of your belly will flow torrents of living water. That as we do that, we're going to be blessed and refreshed and renewed. And then also for our land as well, that there is true revival. That's what I hope that we pray for, especially in the time that we're in. We are facing unparalleled 
difficulties and challenges for our nation. And we see where we're headed financially. We see where we're headed morally. We see where we're headed spiritually. And it concerns us, doesn't it? And we need to pray that, Lord, that truly revival will break out. There will be another great awakening for our nation. And that's what we need to be praying for as a church and for ourselves individually um, as we pray and pray for our leaders. So here he's talking about that, um, that, that God said that he would hold back the reins if they disobeyed. And, um, and here Solomon is saying, but if we call out to him, he's going to hear us. And, um, and that we may fear you, Lord, in verse 41. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake. For they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and... Um, of your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards this temple and here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all your um, for which the foreigner calls to you that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as they as do your people Israel and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name so this temple was to be a place where he begins to pray about that the foreigner, or that is the Gentile, or the unbeliever would come and know that he can come here and pray to the Lord, and it would be a witness of the Lord that they may come to know you, Lord. That they may come to know you. That was the whole purpose, not only for the people of Israel to come and worship there, but for the other nations, that the other nations may know that you are true. Do you remember in the Gospels, and I'm sure that you do, you know how when Jesus came in riding into Jerusalem in his last week of his life, and he came during the Passover, and he got really upset at the religious leaders, and he overturned the money changers' tables, and he drove out the, the animals that they were selling for sacrifice and released the doves, and he rebuked the religious leaders. And he said that you have made my father's house, which is a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. And we talked about how what was taking place at that time is that the religious leaders were really taking advantage of the people of God who were coming to the temple to worship during Passover. You see, at this time, at this first temple, that most of the Jews coming to the sacrifice, they lived around Jerusalem. So it wasn't all that difficult or uncommon for most of the people to be able to bring a, a sacrifice, a lamb, or an animal to sacrifice without any problem. But after, you know, this temple is destroyed, they go off into captivity, uh, in the Babylonian captivity, and then they would come back into the land and build the second temple. The Jews were dispersed at that time. And so the Jews would be dispersed uh, in that area of, of Persia and all throughout, you know, the, the known world at that time to where in Jesus' day, the dispersa, which is it is called, that the Jews would be all over the known world. And they would desire to come to Jerusalem to, to sacrifice and to also worship at the Passover. So the religious leaders came up with a good idea initially. They said, listen, why don't we have some lambs and why don't we have doves and, and animals for sacrifices that have already been pre-approved, inspected by the priests. So when those travelers are coming, not just from Israel, but from all over the known empire from Asia Minor or Northern Africa, that they don't have to try to bring an animal for sacrifice because traveling was very dangerous back then, wasn't it? And it was very difficult. And to try to drag a lamb along, you know, what are you going to do? To have a big bag of lamb feed that you're going to bring? And then by the time that animal got to the temple, it would be bruised and scratched up. And, and as I said, it was dangerous to, to travel. There was packs of wild dogs and everything. It just wasn't very practical for somebody to bring an animal from a long distance. So it was a good idea. When they get there to Jerusalem, they can buy a sacrifice. They can buy a lamb and sacrifice for their family for the Passover feast. So what started out to be a good idea, what took place was, is that Annas, who was the, the power behind the high priest's office, as you read about in John's Gospel, you read about Annas, the high priest, and then Caiaphas was the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. And what took place was, when the Romans came in and took over Jerusalem and took over Israel, what they said was that we are going to make sure that we have the person who is the leader of the Jews, 
we want that person you know, that we can trust that's going to work with us, and that would be the high priest. They didn't care about the spiritual qualifications of the high priest. All they cared about is who's going to you know, pay us enough money to keep the high priest's office, and who's going to work with us and appease us, and then the high priest could only serve for two years, and then they had to change you know, uh, high priest. And so what Annas did is he bought the high priest's office, and then in the selling of the animals at Passover, that he was making a killing, him and his family. And what they were doing is as people came in, they would buy their sacrifices, they would buy the lambs, and they were selling them at very high prices, just uh, exuberant rates. And then also, as the people would come for Passover, they would have to give to the temple. And the high priest and, and the you know, religious leaders, they were not going to accept that Roman coinage. That, that's blasphemy. So you had to exchange it for temple coinage. coinage. And again, the, the exchange rate was to where the priests were making a lot of money, especially Annas. And Annas was making so much money that he was able to buy the high priest's office every two years for his family. And Caiaphas, at the year that Jesus was crucified, was the official high priest that year, as it says in John's Gospel. But it was Annas who was the power behind the high priest's office. And as they were there, they're making millions, what would be millions in today's terms, and and um, and uh, riches and and there they are you know ripping the people off taking advantage of them Jesus comes in and he sees that and he says you have made my father's house which is a house of prayer into a den of thieves you're ripping the people off but here's another reason why Jesus was upset because just as Solomon is praying that when the Gentile comes a foreigner and they see this magnificent temple that they see the beauty of it and, and the splendor of it, but more than anything, they would see the glory of the Lord and his name would be proclaimed that they might know that you are true, the other nations. And that was God's desire is that Israel would be a light to the other nations and they would see how God was blessing them and, and protecting them and providing for them. And they had this glorious temple to where they can come and they would be witness to and it would be a wonderful light to them and it was the same in Jesus day and what would take place is the Gentiles would come into Jerusalem as well we get evidence of that in John chapter 12 right remember it was the Greeks that come to see Jesus they said we wish to see Jesus and the reason that the Greeks came to see Jesus is because the Greeks they believed in many gods you know they uh, were polytheistic and and had many pagan gods they believed but one of the things that they thought the Greek mind was is that greater the temple, greater the God. Jerusalem, as we know, when Herod expanded the second temple, it was very magnificent. He overlaid the temple with gold. And so the Greeks would come because of this magnificent temple, and it was an opportunity for the people of Israel to be a witness to those from the other nations who were unbelievers that were come to the temple in Jesus' day. And he said, you've made my, my father's house, which is a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah, Jesus says, and Isaiah says, a house of prayer for all the nations. It was to be a witness and a light to those Greeks that were coming. And, and it was to be a testimony of the reality and the glory of the Lord. But they had missed it. And they were making merchandise of the things of God and of the, the Passover feast. I think that there's a very important principle that we need to stop and consider as, as we see Solomon praying for the foreigner. And it's simply this. Well, my prayer is that this house of the Lord would be a witness and a testimony of the glory and the truthfulness and the goodness of the Lord that the foreigner, if you would, that is the Gentile, if you would, the unbeliever, that as they come to this place, that they would know of the reality of the Lord and hear God's truth, and it would be a witness to them. And I want to encourage you, especially in the day in which we're living in, 
that you pray about who it is that you can bring to Calvary Chapel, who it is that you can bring here so they can hear the truth of God's word and the gospel and, and respond to the gospel, to be able to come here and see the love of Jesus Christ being worked out in our lives, that this place would be a witness of the truthfulness and the goodness of God always, every single day. And that we would have a heart for the lost and that this would be a house of prayer where we're praying for our community and for our nation. Because the Lord is coming back and we are in perilous times. And this is a time for us to press in and really be praying about these things and, and in being about the Lord's business that this would be a house of prayer. So that's what Solomon is, is praying for in verse 44. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord towards this city which you have chosen and the temple which I built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and supplication and maintain their cause. And verse 46, And when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them into the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land, to those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul and land, their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you towards their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I built for your name. So he's praying that when you're taken off in the captivity for your enemies, when you turn towards this place and you pray with your heart in repentance and again to remind you that the Lord always hears the one who humbles himself and comes in repentance and desires to seek the Lord, the one who truly seeks him. He never rejects. He never rejects. And I pray that there's no one here tonight that you think, I can't come to the Lord because of my past. I can't come to the Lord because of my struggle. As you humble your heart and come, truly, he knows your heart and cry out to him, he hears you. As you come in repentance, as you come to confess your sin, the Lord hears you, and the Lord desires to minister to you and help you, forgive you, to, to do a work in your heart. That's what he desires to do. And here he's saying, if you turn towards his place, that's what Daniel was doing. And as you read in Daniel chapter 6, you remember that he opened up his window and he turned towards Jerusalem and he prayed as was customary because of this prayer of dedication. He's praying towards Jerusalem. Lord, forgive us. As you read his prayer in Daniel chapter 9, we have sinned and, and we're coming towards the end of our captivity. And the reason we're in captivity is because of our sin. Lord, please take us back into the land. And so here Solomon is praying about that. And then as we read, continue reading in verse 49, or uh, verse 49, we'll pick it up. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which you have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt out of the iron furnace that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your, your, your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, our Lord God. A couple of things here. What we're going to see over and over again, when they go and begin to worship other gods, that the Lord calling them to repentance will say, don't you remember I brought you out of Egypt? I brought you out of, I like what it says here, what he says in verse 51, out of the iron furnace. Now when you think about that, you think an iron furnace, hot, dry, not a good thing. And you see, that's the world. Egypt is a picture of the world. I brought you out of all of that. I brought you out of all of that. The iron furnace, just the bondage and 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 being burnt by the world. I brought you out of that because you are a special people. And then second of all, verse 53, you're a special people among all the earth and to be your inheritance, Lord. In other words, that the children of Israel were God's inheritance. And that amazes me. And it's very, very similar to what Paul prays in the book of Ephesians. I'll read it to you in Ephesians chapter 1. 
that Paul is he's praying, he's, he's talking about the blessings that we have in Christ as he takes us to the heavenlies. But in verse uh, 17, as he begins to pray for them, he says that the Lord of uh, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. And then verse 18, the eyes of your understanding. This is what Paul is praying for the Christians. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, whether the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That absolutely amazes me. Here Solomon is talking about that your people are separated because we are your inheritance, God. And then Paul later on, as he prays, you know, a, a thousand years later, that for the saints to know that we are his inheritance. In other words, as you read Ephesians chapter 1, we have an inheritance in Christ. The heavenly riches belong to you and to me. We glory in that. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that we have heaven, that you may know what is the hope of your calling. That is heaven that awaits us and the riches of heaven that belongs to us. But then he turns around that you may know of the inheritance of his inheritance in the saints. In other words, that you are so valuable, you are so important to the Lord that you and me are his inheritance. Isn't that amazing? When I think I'm your inheritance, Lord, I think you got the raw end of the deal. But it just speaks of his love and acceptance and how much he does love us and value us. We are his inheritance. You're so important to me that I consider you my inheritance is what the Lord is saying. And that's what Solomon is saying. That the people of Israel, I brought you out of that iron furnace. And listen, he brought us out of the iron furnace of the world. And there is nothing in this world that can compare as if you pursue after the things of the world and the pleasures of the world. Nothing in this world compares to what God has for us, the inheritance that he has for us. The hope of our calling the heavenly riches that belong to you and to me. But as I realize that I'm his inheritance, I just marvel at that. that. Lord, that you love me that much, am I that valuable to you, that you consider me your inheritance? Yes. That's how valuable you are to me. And then as we finish tonight, verse 54, so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he rose from the, before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. And then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There is not one, not failed one word of all his good promises which he promised through his servant Moses. Saints, please remember that over time, you're going to see that the Lord will prove himself to be true and his word true to you. That he promises to work all things out for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. And you may be here tonight saying, well, I'm in a situation, Lord, how are you going to work good? You just let the Lord work and you will see over time that he works for good because he has an eternal perspective. And we may not understand everything that's taken place in our lives and how the Lord's going to work it out, but his promises are true for us and will not fail for us. And as I think about that, that just brings great comfort to me to know that, Lord, your word declares all the way through your word that you're true to your word. And in verse 57, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. Jesus promised he would never leave us or forsake us and that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord be near the Lord our God day and night that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. This was to be a place where all the peoples of the earth were to know the Lord. And may we be ones that we desire as we walk out of this place that others may come to know him as well. There is no other God. It is Jesus Christ that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments at this day. 
In verse 62, Then the king and of all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. And on the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. And at that time, Solomon held a great feast, and all Israel Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days and then seven more days, 14 days. And then on the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. Keep verse 66 in mind as we will continue on. The people went away glad of heart, very joyful, satisfied, a joyous time, two weeks of celebration. And what we're going to see is the decline of a nation now because they got their eyes off the Lord, because they got their eyes off the Lord. The Lord has been good to us. And may we leave this place glad of heart, having joy in our hearts because of what the Lord has done for you and for me. Father, we thank you again for this study as we've looked at this prayer of dedication and lord we thank you so much for your word uh, here that has been proclaimed oh father what you have provided for us taking us out of the world the junk of the world the bondage of the world because jesus christ the lamb of god came and died for us. Lord, I just want to just pray if anyone hearing this message has never made that commitment, that we want to give you opportunity tonight to just pray right where you're at, that prayer of commitment to the Lord. Jesus Christ came to this world because he loves you so much and knowing that all of us have sinned, he is our only hope. And Jesus went to a cross for you. He said that he was going to. To die for sinful humanity. But he would rise again after three days. And Jesus on that cross cried out, It is finished. I've done the work. The price has been paid. He took all of our sins upon himself, the Son of God who lived a perfect life. And he conquered sin and death, proving and validating what he did for us on the cross at Calvary as he rose from the grave and he conquered sin and death. And salvation now comes by faith. It doesn't come by religiousness. It is for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, just confessing that I'm a sinner. And all manner of sin is forgiven, the Lord says. He died for every single sin that you've committed if you've never come. And surrender to Jesus. He's provided a way, the only way, for forgiveness of sin and salvation. Will you take a moment and open your heart to Jesus, if that means anything to anyone tonight? And you pray, Jesus, I give my heart to you. I confess that I am a sinner. And I come and I thank you for dying for my sins. That there is no other God like you has provided for a way for a man to be forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. Forgive me. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you're alive. You conquered sin and death. And thank you for coming into my heart and for saving me. That I was that much loved and, and valuable to you that you would come and die for me. Thank you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. I turn to you, I surrender to you now fully, my heart and my life. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. 